This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Welcome to episode 46 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the downright bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. On the 30th of November, 1854, miners from Ballarat and Victoria swore an oath to the Southern Cross flag at Bakery Hill and built a stockade at the nearby Eureka Diggings. They were unhappy with the way the colonial government had been running the goldfields. Early on the 3rd of December 1854, government troops attacked the stockade and at least 22 miners and five soldiers were killed. Despite the defeat of the miners at the stockade, the event at Eureka later led to changes in how people were governed, as well as people's attitudes towards democracy and a fair go. Establishing the well-known Australian mentality of supporting the underdog and overcoming adversity for what's right, good and just. This December 3rd marks the 169th anniversary of the Eureka Stockade, and to help me talk about this historical Australian event, I'm joined by Stella and Old Man Raven. Welcome, guys. Hey, Drew. Hello. Thank you very much for thanks for having us. Sorry, Stella, I cut across you there. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. No, nice to meet you. It's, thank you for Stella for hooking us up. I've been um, wanting to talk more about Australian history because the international listeners seem to have a real love for it because it's something that's not really um, heard of or told overseas our own historical context and. Ironically, not a lot of Australians seem to know about much about this anymore. Um, we had a conversation on the phone, and it is taught in schools, but not to the length that I think it really should be, or it doesn't garner the intention and the respect I think it should have for such a big event that it was. Mm. Yeah, true. I would agree with that. Um, I'm, I've got a few years on you. I'm, I'm 60 now, and so I went to school in the sort of mid-60s through till about 1980 when I graduated. And in primary school, we had a subject called Australian history, a little textbook that went along with that. I don't recall from that anything about the Eureka Stockade. Um, there was probably something in there. I just don't recall it. So you're quite right. It wasn't majored on. Um, I remember little bits about history of the Indigenous people and uh, convict transportation. We had school excursions, but um, not a lot about Eureka. And it is, it's a very important um, event in Australian history, probably more important than it would appear at first, at first glance. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah sorry, absolutely. that's right. Absolutely. It's a, it's something that I don't think is getting as much attention as it should. And it's probably for a reason, which I'll, I'll probably touch on a little bit later in this conversation. Now I just gave a very brief synopsis of this, just the details of when and, and roughly what happened, but not really the reasons behind it happening and the uh, events that led up to it. For the international mm. listeners, could you put this down to any other historical events worldwide? Are there any comparisons that you can link to um, for un- so that people can kind of 
bit a little bit of a bridge to understand the significance of this event? Yeah. Uh, okay. Big question. Yeah, there was. Um, I think it's crucial that a lot, in fact, most of the people involved in this, we'll call it skirmish for the moment. It was a battle. Let's face it. It was there was lead flying. It didn't last long. It only lasted about twenty minutes or so. But um, most of the participants were Irish. <laughs> and so they had a long history of, um, you know, anti-English sentiment and they'd been, I mean, the Irish people have been ruled by one or another empire for hundreds of years. You had the Roman Empire sort of in there. They, they never really conquered the same way they did with England. You had the Vikings come in and, and take over and eventually settle. You had all kinds of other battles and we won't go into that. That's a whole other kettle of fish. But um, uh, a lot of, there was a movement in the 18th uh 19th century, I'm sorry, round about, I'm just looking at some notes here, 1838 to about 1857 called Chartism. And just put in one sentence, that was just a movement fiercely opposed to government authorities. Um, they wanted reform, basically democratic reform. They wanted representation. They wanted um, equality in government so that the, the rich lords weren't the only ones who were ruling the country. Okay. Um, they wanted to vote for every man aged 21 years and above. Uh, secret ballot, things like that, things that we almost take for granted today. We should be able to take take for granted, but there's questions. Um, so they weren't, these Chartists weren't very well liked by the British Empire at all, as you can imagine, because they didn't like people getting in the way of their uh, machinations <laughs> and stepping up and having a vote. They wanted to say, you do this and or else, and uh, no votes allowed. So um, a lot of them, of the Irish folks out here, uh, they weren't all convicts. Um, who were at Eureka. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But they were, the Irish folks were very well represented. In fact, if I'll cut to a little, I did a little bit of counting yesterday. Um, this is just the people who were killed or wounded at Eureka. Um, out of 31 who either were killed or wounded and later died or were just wounded, 20 of them out of 31 were Irish. So right there, you've got two thirds one Scotsman, three Englishmen, two Canadians two Germans or Prussians, one German, one Prussian. Uh, Prussia no longer exists. Obviously, it was part of Germany at the time. Two of unknown nationality. And strangely enough, only one fellow who was a native-born uh, Australian. Everyone else came from somewhere else, hence were an immigrant. And uh, the one man on this list who was native-born Australian, his name was William Quinlan, and he came from Goulburn in New South Wales. Uh, yes, yeah, so he was killed there, and his name is on the monument. So uh, you've got a lot of um, what the English crown would refer to as rogues and um, uh, what's another word, scoundrels, uh, people who wanted to stir up trouble, insurgents almost. Uh, almost of today's politicians would call undesirables or cookers yeah. <laughs> or people of that nature. It's quite interesting <laughs> that anywhere the British Empire kind of set foot in what would considered to be new lands or new worlds, they always established with convict labour. Even the United States was originally founded as a penal colony as well. And through the yeah. War of Independence, forced them to find a new land and Australia kind of sprung up from that. And it almost went the same way as the War of Independence. This, like you said, it was only an event that lasted over a few hours realistically, but it had the potential. And I think for the British, they saw this as, hang on, we better do something about this very quickly because we've just happened had this happen in the new world. We don't want something similar to happen here. Mm. Would you say that's a fair assumption? Absolutely, yeah. They wanted to keep the lid on the kettle for sure. 
because if you had, I mean, you can't have people running around determining their own destiny, for goodness sake. You know, with British Empire, we tell you what to do. So you don't tell us that you want the vote. What's that? It's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, that was the, the thought. They didn't want uh, convicts to rise up. Um, in fact, look, just as a byline, it's, uh, I, I'll show you something. I know the viewers can't see this. It's a little bit of cardboard. What it is is part of a wine box. And we have a brand of wine here called 19 Crimes. It's an Australian wine, and it, it lists on the box the 19 crimes. I won't read them all, but uh, these are the crimes by which, for which you could be transported to Australia by the British Empire, okay? By the way, that's how I ended up here, and, and Stella as well, convict ancestors, like a lot of Australians. Um, so, okay, you've got, you could be transported for these crimes. Grand larceny, which was considered to be theft above the value of one shilling. <laughs> Not particularly grand, is it? Petty larceny, which was a theft under one shilling. <laughs> so basically any theft. <laughs> uh, buying or receiving stolen goods, tools, <clears throat> etc. Okay, fair enough. Stealing lead, iron or copper or buying or receiving the same. Get this one. Impersonating an Egyptian. <laughs> why? I have no idea why that's a crime anymore. I, I actually know why that is a crime. Indeed, why is that? There was a very big movement um, in the 100 to 150 years prior to this where people would claim to be of uh, wealthy foreign nationals and they would smooze and wine and dine all the elites of England and often try to get money out of them until they figured out the scam was real. They'd say they were from Nigeria or they'd say they're from Burma and they'd be the whitest (laughs) of white people, maybe a little bit Mediterranean in appearance. And they just scam the wealthy for money at dinner parties, right? Until they realize, until they realize that uh, these people were actually from like Cornwall or somewhere else, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shropshire or somewhere. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's a whole bunch of other things, poaching type things, stealing fish from a pond or river, stealing roots, trees, or plants, or destroying the same. Bigamy, counterfeiting, stealing a shroud out of a grave. That's an interesting one. I don't particularly know why that was a a crime, but uh, look, without reading them all, it's just an interesting list, and anyone out there can, can look it up, do a search on it. But uh, basically, I mean, the, my ancestor was sent here for either forging or passing a forged pound note. We don't know if he forged it himself or he was handed it and didn't recognize it as counterfeit and tried to spend it. And someone said, That's counterfeit, you're nicked. So we're not sure which, but uh, it's it's hardly worth it. It's not really a crime worthy of being transported across the world and having your entire life changed um, by that. But anyway, so that's that's the crimes you could get here for, get to Australia for. Yeah, it's almost uh, quite um, indicative of the stranglehold the the British Empire had within its own borders. The vast mm. majority of the population at that time within the United Kingdom, they were almost forced off their land through poverty and forced into these large overpopulated cities in which mm. they were really just driven to crime to survive. And the byproduct of that was prison hulks and they had nowhere to put these people. So that's right. There yeah. you go. America was locked out from them and Australia was the next bet. And like you said, the smallest and most idiotic of what can be considered crimes got them a one-way ticket to Australia. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> almost, it's almost like a class genocide, really. I it mean, really was. That's absolutely. what it was. Yeah. And it's, it's, it was a time that people were starting to become more educated than what previous generations had been as well. It's almost like the genie started to get out of the bottle and they quickly kind of shoved it back in and to get rid of people, they send them to the other side of the planet. 
Absolutely. Yeah, they needed a population out here. They, we've, we've got all this huge land called uh, Australia, <clears throat> and um, we need a population. We need, basically, let's face it, they need a slave labour. They needed people to build things and farm things and do what they wanted. Mm. And uh, throughout history, you've got, you know, from the pyramids on down and before that even, um, you've, you've had all these great things built by slave labour, by captured people who were forced into indentured servitude of various forms. I mean, the slavery, the word slavery, you usually, uh, a lot of people just think of America and the, the slave situation over there prior to the Civil War. But it's um, it's still going on today in various forms and it's been going on in pretty much every civilization for thousands of years. So, yeah, that's what the British Empire wanted out here. They wanted a population, they wanted people to work and um, they didn't necessarily want to... Uh, Bring the rich people out. Well, the rich people didn't want to go out, come out here because uh, it's too far away and too hot. And it took six months to get here. On it was a, boat, a short which... trip. It was not a short trip. No, it's it's no, interesting it's a that thing. it's interesting you bring up the the idea of slavery because uh, some of the listeners who would have heard my podcast before would know that slavery and the word slave is a derivation of the word Slav or Slavic because Slav, the Slavic yeah. people at one pe- per, um, one point in time were slaves. Um, mm. Lot due to the Ottoman Empire and other empires that constantly conquered those regions. But coming back to the point of the major demographic of that were at Eureka Stockade and for a large portion of Australians is Irish descent. Like you said, mm. either through convicts or indentured servants, which America has a similar history. There's a large amount of Irish slaves that were brought to the New World and to Australia who aren't officially recognised as such. They're seen as mm. colonists, air quote. Mm. Yeah, true story. Uh, a little bit different, I guess, with the American thing because the, the story, the narrative that we're given and you hear most often is, of course, that there was religious persecution. Um, and so they said, no, that's it. We've had enough. We want to get out of here and go somewhere where we can practice our religion, um, you know, whether it was Quakers or whatever, different different no, forms Puritans. of that. Yeah, Puritans. That's the word I'm looking for, not Quakers, but Puritans. Um, Huguenots, I think, were involved in that too. Various little sects of of Christianity that weren't particularly popular and the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock and all that. Anyway, look, I'm going to go. That's a whole other thing too. But um, we didn't really have that. It was, it was just, it was the convict thing for the most part. And an important thing to, to realize too, is that the, the army that were out here in Australia and the troopers or the policemen, um, nobody in England wanted to take a post out here. Uh, you know, as if you were a copper in England, Oh, you want to go out to Australia? No, thanks. I'm staying here in England. I want to go down, down there. There's snakes and it's hot and it's miles away. So what you got was um, several things. One of two things, either the cops in England who were being punished for something, uh, much like being sent to Siberia, you'd be sent to Australia. If you fouled up as a cop, well, you're, you're bound for Australia. You go and serve down there. We don't want you here. Or else they were convicts who'd done their sentence and, joined the police force out here. So there were men who were used to violence and had had violence practised upon them and probably, without putting a blanket thing across them all, were fairly bitter about that and, um, you know, ready to to practise violence on other people as a form of revenge, possibly. Who knows? That's a little bit of speculation there, but I'm sure that was true for a lot of them. Yeah, well, the idea of multi-generational trauma can come back to that as Mm. well, most definitely. Exactly. So the idea yeah. of, of this was that, and we skimmed over that at the start, that Ballarat in Australia, it's part of Victoria, my home state, um, very rich in gold. And as we know, 
Anytime mm. gold is found, it creates a gold rush. <clears throat> and everyone seems to flock to it. Um, Australia had a, the chi- a lot of Chinese come to Australia to participate in this as well. But when you have a basis of convicts and colonial settlers that are hard on their luck trying to make a living and gold is present, a lot of people flock to it. And naturally, mm. when there's something that's in, a, in abundance at the time that's worth so much money and is super valuable, there's always someone that tries to take control of that. Um, and, and who can you pinpoint as being the controlling factor for this? Was it just the empire itself? Was there a company involved? Uh, pretty much the queen. <laughs> Not directly, but um, oh, the king at the time, I believe. Uh, um, no, the queen actually would have been Victoria, of course, then. But um, you had 1851 was, was when gold was first discovered in any sort of quantity. That's, this is debatable, but it's pretty much recognised that a bloke called Thomas Hiscock discovered gold near the town of Buninyong in Victoria, which is sort of around the Ballarat-Mendigo area, out there in central Victoria. And um, that was reported in the Geelong Advertiser, and that that was it. It was on. <laughs> and a lot of the guys who came, I say guys because they were predominantly men, but they did bring their families, some of them who had families, a lot of the men who came to the diggings in Victoria had previous experience in California in the gold rush in America. I don't know the numbers or the proportions, but some of them would have. They'd, they'd gone over there. They'd learned something about gold, how you find it, how you pan for it, dig for it, all that. Um, and then they heard of the Victorian gold rush and went, right, we're, we're there. We'll come back. A lot of Americans came out, uh, Canadians, people of all different nationalities, actually. As you said, many, many Chinese folks came down here to... Uh, to mine for gold. Um, that's another question too. That's sort of one of the one of the. Um, I'm jumping a little bit here, but one of the kick-on effects from from that was uh, it's not often talked about was that the uh, the diggers' opposition to Chinese immigration sort of warped and and crystallised into what would later become the White Australia policy, mm. which was uh, affected from about 1901. Uh, intentionalized from from 1901 right up to like the late 60s 1960s which is just ridiculous but it was basically as you know a policy to keep australia white and we don't want too many immigrants and all that sort of attitude which is uh yep. very dog in a manger sort of attitude really yeah, but, yeah. it is the, now the major difference that a lot of these internationals who did have mining experience in say california and canada that came out mm. to australia is because australia it was a, <clears throat> a a colony of the british empire the claim of land or staking a claim for gold didn't exist like it did in the, in the Americas. In the United States, you could no. stake a claim on a specific area and whatever gold you found on your claim belonged to you. Being a part of the British Empire, however, meant that miners could be moved on whenever they the government or the Crown felt the need to. Usually it would coincide with finding a pretty good deposit. So that's... Yeah, is this, enough, the, yeah. this is really the consensus around why there was so much, uh, a lot of... Um, apprehension and anger towards the crown at the time because the fair go of hey i've done the hard work i've found the gold but i'm not actually getting out anything out of it seemed to be the real crux of this issue now didn't it absolutely absolutely every every bit of gold belonged to the queen basically that that was the full stop that's it um at first certainly it's the queen's gold so if you're trying to claim it they they didn't want you to do that they being the, the officials the british empire officials in this country uh, it all belonged to the Queen. So you, the, their idea was you report it and it all goes to the Empire, which is one of the main grievances. The miners were saying, no, we've dug for this, we've sweated for it, 
it's bloody well ours. You know, don't tell us to give it to the Queen. So um, it's a it's a fair gripe in a lot of ways. It's uh, you mentioned the word fair go, which is very much an Aussie thing. Um, we've always stood up for that. It gets battered around a little bit, but we have stood up for a fair go, and that's really what these miners were doing. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine the people pouring into these diggings, the amount of people that came to Ballarat, Bendigo, different other towns, central Victoria, during those times. They they called themselves diggers for obvious reasons, and that term later got applied to um, our soldiers in World War I. Uh, they became diggers as well, even though they didn't necessarily dig the earth. But uh, the population of Victoria rose like by about almost half, I believe. Uh, let's, I've just got some notes here. Um, yeah, the population in a decade from 1851, in the next decade, decade they, the population went from 76,000 to 540,000, which is a quantum leap. That's primarily because of the gold rush. Which so, in itself um, creates issues, doesn't it? When your population absolutely. explodes like that, the resources that are uh, available and the resources that have been built and created they outstrip the population. They're far too small. The population outstrip the the land in which they live. So not only have you got these oppressed um, diggers who felt like they weren't getting their fair go, their fair share of the gold that was being mined, they were in constant competition with uh, making bed and boarding, getting food. And as you yep. know, in the Americas, <laughs> it was the case of the company store. So you could only spend your money in the company store. Within Australia because the Crown pretty much had a claim to everything and that's where it goes back to anyway. It cut out the middleman. It didn't need that. But mm. people would inflate the prices of food. People that were at Ballarat, who may have come from um, other countries, other parts of the colony of Australia at that time, of New South Wales, they would have realised that, geez, it actually costs a heck of a lot more to get a feed here than it did back home. And I'm stuck <laughs> now. I've got no money to get back. I'm I'm all in it or I'm out. Yeah. Like, it was a very... A very hard position to be in, I'm sure. Indeed. And anyone who's ever been to any kind of music festival will recognise that. <laughs> Bottled <laughs> water. Bottled water, yep. Yeah, I, food of I, different kinds, 19 plates, $19 for a plate of rice or whatever. You think, what? You know, so, yeah, true story. Plastic cup of beer. Sacrilege. I just had a question. You were, you were talking about how all the gold had to go back to the crown. So... Were the diggers allowed to keep any percentage of it, or was it a hundred percent? It didn't exactly all go back to the crown. It wasn't all shipped off physically back to England. But the the concept was that anything you find on the Queen's land belongs to the Queen, belongs to the crown, hence the empire. Right. So, so that was a hundred percent of it, was it? Pretty much, yeah. It's mm. um, it's much the same thing of if if you're poaching on the land that belongs to some lord. He owns all the deer and the rabbits and the foxes and whatever else you might be hunting for. Yeah, right. um, Maybe not foxes, you don't necessarily eat them, but rabbits and deers. And if you kill a deer to feed your starving family, you, you're poaching and therefore yeah. you can be hung mm. because that deer belongs to the lord of the land. I think a modern so day, uh, yeah, a modern day equivalency would be if, say, we were mining and we struck gold and we found a nugget that was worth $500,000. We have to give that to the crown, and we might get a measly payment of 150 bucks for our hard work. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It's funny getting back to America just for a second. It's um, it's ironic that when the American government were shifting the Native Americans tribes out of pushing them further west or south or wherever they pushed them, the Sioux tribe, uh, Lakota, I think, or Dakota, Dakota, 
were pushed up and told they could live in um, around the Black Hills, which is a very sacred site for them. Um, the government said, yeah, you go there. And then a fellow called Custer and his troops were patrolling around there. They found gold. And suddenly the government, oh, the government said, oh, yeah, did we say you could live here? Sorry, uh, you need to go over there because we've sort of found gold here. So now we want this bit and you can bugger off somewhere else. So it's, we, we didn't mean cool. these hills. We meant those hills. That yeah, was- the other Black Hills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The off Black Hills. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. <laughs> but um, Which brings into question, um, was there, what's the Indigenous take on this? Were, what, is there any stories or um, historical information about First Nations within that area at that time that are connected to this at all? I, I don't know. I haven't come across a lot of it in, in the, the various study that I've done, particularly for this, this today's podcast. But um, I know there were Indigenous folks obviously there. Uh, there's photos from the period which in which you can see Indigenous uh, men mainly, um, or from the photos that I've seen, who were involved, whether they were treated as fellow miners or whether they were there as servants. Uh, I don't know. I, I, that's something I couldn't actually speak to. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, I just thought it would be mm. worth it, the question as well. And I haven't mm. looked into that side of things either myself. No, so it's a good question. So we've got these, essentially, we've got convicts, we've got indentured servants, people that are hard on their luck, trying to scrape a living out of this new continent and this new colony. They feel like mm. they're being taken for a ride. But there was also a series of events that led up to it. I'm going to read one out, and um, it'd be interesting to see if you came across this yourself as well. Sure. So I found out that on October 6th, 1854, a miner was killed at the hotel in Ballarat. Um, the hotel mm. owner was arrested for the crime but wasn't convicted in court. Uh, and This is put down as one of the uh, original, uh, almost like the sparking of the flame before the stockade actually occurred. It was the things that built up to it along with everything else going on. Indeed. Yeah, that was... Um... Uh, the miners. It was a Scottish man named James Scobie, and he was uh, he was murdered. The, the events, the actual events or, or um, details of the events, aren't particularly clear. Uh, but he was murdered, and the man who ran the, the hotel, a man called James Bentley, was accused of the crime. Him and a couple of others. Um, you often read that he was just acquitted, and that's why the miners got so upset uh, because they saw that justice had not been done. Um, but the fact was, uh, just again referring to my notes here, um, he was actually, uh, okay, let me read. Due to the outcry on the Ballarat diggings about the initial acquittal of um, James Bentley and his mates and the insinuation of police corruption, there was a riot and they burned the Eureka Hotel on the 17th of October, which was Bentley's hotel. And then there was a cause for a new trial. The authorities said, all right, we'll, we'll have a new trial. And on November 18th of 1854, James Bentley, Thomas Farrell and William Hance were convicted of the manslaughter of James Scobie. Manslaughter, not murder. And they were sentenced to three years of hard labour on a road crew. James Bentley's wife, Catherine, who ran the hotel with him, was acquitted. Um, little side note, James Bentley, who ran the hotel, he died by suicide uh, later on, 1873. He overdosed himself on laudanum, which was a mix of alcohol and opium. Um, in Carlton, in, in Melbourne. And his wife said, and I'm quoting here, his wife said at the inquest, my husband has never been of quite right mind since he lost his property at the Ballarat riots. He has never recovered from the effects of it. So they're just in one man's life, the knock-on effects of this this attitude, the violence and the um, 
I mean, this was a violent bunch of men. They they were rough guys, these miners. They weren't petite, lacy, tea-swilling Brits. These were often scoundrels. They were, as we said before, often ex-convicts. They were men who were ready to stand up and use their fists to solve the problem if they needed to. And um, I'm not advocating that's the way to go or anything, but that's that's the kind of folks you had here for the most part. <clears throat> and... Um, yeah, so that knock-on effect, you often you, you often hear that the, the that Bentley was acquitted and that's what uh, got the miners so upset. But he, he was later retried and did serve a sentence for it. It was only three years, but uh, even still, he lost his hotel. And that was, as you said, a crucial point. It, it was it showed the authorities that, hey, this, things are getting out of hand with these mining people. They're, um, they're not behaving themselves. They're starting to do things and we, we need to, to crush this. But long before that, you had a thing called the this is crucial, the, the miners' licences, the gold licences, which the government uh, authorities had said, if you're going to mine, you need a licence. Okay, all right, they, the miners said, I suppose that's sort of fair enough. You need to pay the government for the privilege of digging crown land. The trouble was the fees for the licences were just exorbitant. They were ridiculous. And I don't have to hand the... Um, adjusted for inflation figures of what it would cost in today's money. But um, it was somewhere between 30 shillings a month or a pound a month. Sources vary on how much it was, but either one was exorbitant. Uh, it would have been probably equivalent to you know, a couple of hundred dollars or more than that per month. And the miners, miners just couldn't pay. They weren't working. Mining wasn't a moonlighting job for them. That's what they did all day. So they didn't have other income. Um, they were just digging and living off what they could find uh, out of the ground. And if they got a little bit of gold dust, they could trade it in. And a lot of people quickly realised that it was a lot easier, instead of going digging and sweating and getting wet and dirty and horrible, as a miner, the smart thing to do was you get a bunch of tools and you sell the tools to the miners. <laughs> and so you set up it right. <laughs> Exactly, as we said, as you mentioned before, yeah. it's so, so this, the is, shovels and this is another compounding thing that seems to be stacking on this, um, stoking the fire that would end up being mm. the, the stockade and the rebellion that happened there is that you've got people who are struggling to get by. Mm. They have to pay outrageous monthly fees of a license to dig the ground, which you don't have any guarantees of getting that gold out of the ground and when you do you're getting it at a reduced payment that payment goes towards the food that's highly inflated the tools that you might need to replace because they're broken these people were getting exploited and it wasn't just the convicts it was the free men who were there trying to make their lives in this new land so you can see why they became very angry very quickly and the influence of the the internationals who had experienced things very different say under californian law american law on what a claim was, and they could see what fairness was opposed to what the Crown had put in place, that really stoked the the philosophical and the mental attitude towards what they decided and ended up doing. Absolutely, absolutely. The American attitude was, as you can imagine, was very different. America being very much, a, to use the old phrase, rugged individualist, that, that was their whole country was founded on that. They were not going to be told what to do. They weren't going to be told. Uh, I mean, the Second Amendment is an absolute um, crystallisation of that, that, the right to bear arms, um, the right to carry a gun, basically. Nobody can take that away from you. That's been enshrined in their constitution. That is a very individual thing, and in those days it was needed. Um, but we didn't have that here. We don't have a Second Amendment. At the time, we, didn't, we weren't a nation. We were a colony. 
in Australia. We weren't uh, our own nation, uh, not till 1901. And some would say we still aren't, but that's a whole other thing. We'll get into that in some other podcast. But, yeah, um, these these licence hunts, what would happen, or the licence fees, I should say, you had, as a miner, you had to be able to produce your physical bit of paper, which was your miner's licence, when you were asked to do so. And what the um, the troopers or the cops were known as the traps. That was uh, what they called the, the cops, and they were the traps. Um and all the army troopers would come round sometimes a couple of times a week. They'd just ride into the camp and they'd pull up someone and say, show us your licence. And if you couldn't do that, even if you had one, but it was back in your tent, you were um, not only arrested, but you could be beaten up. You could be tied to a log overnight. Um, and I mean beaten properly, kicked and, and punched and hit with clubs, um, even if you had a licence. Uh, now, you've got to remember that mining's dirty work. You're down in a hole. It's often wet. You've got a piece of paper. It's not like you've got a driver's licence today, a little credit card piece of plastic that could get wet and not be harmed. This is a bit of paper. So we've got, if it got wet, the ink ran, it was useless. You couldn't keep it in your back pocket and go down your, your, your hole 130 foot below the ground in, in dirt, mud and water because you, your licence would be ruined. So often you had to leave it somewhere else. And if you couldn't put your hand on it straight away and show that trooper or that that trap your license, bang bang goes the club, and you're you know you're not only um, arrested but you were fined sometimes six pounds for your first offence, and you could be jailed for your second offence. The offence being the inability to produce a license, minus license. So it's grossly unfair. It's it's a huge government overreach. These sort of punishments. Um, I can't think of an equivalent. Imagine being jailed for um, for not being able to produce your driver's license. I know you can get fined for that in this country. If a cop pulls you up and you can't show them license, that's an offence. There's a fine involved. But you don't go to jail. Could you imagine? So back oh. then, you could. I oh, know. Well, that's, these, these people were living that, you know. Uh, and you could be jailed even if you had, as I said, even if you had a license, but you didn't have it on you and couldn't produce it when the troopers wanted to see it. So this is the sort of thing that it just... It just pokes people in the wrong spot and it, it, yeah. it niggles at them and you start to go, hang on, this is... I mean, the licence hunts became known as digger hunts, which is really what they were. You weren't hunting for the licence, you were just hunting the diggers. They didn't really want you there. This is the, the, like you mentioned, the gross overreach of government. Now, this is the fascinating thing I found about the psyche of Victorians, that mm. we've had two amazing examples of people who want to stand up for the little guy push back against oppressive tyranny of government and overreach. We've got the Eureka Stockade and with the likes of bushrangers like Ned Kelly and his gang. Mm. Despite his criminality around it, a, a large portion of what he stood up for was the rights of the common man around him that he felt was being um, pushed down by the crown and the colony that existed at the time. But today, mm. Victorians out of the entirety of our country seem to be the first people to turn over or just go along with the status quo of government, particularly within the last three years. Indeed. Interesting point. Uh, I lived in Victoria for 26 years. Uh, I have not lived there since 2015, so I missed the whole COVID thing down there. But, yeah, the fact that Dan Andrews got voted back in, I could not believe after what he did to that state, to your state and my ex-state, I couldn't believe that he got voted in again. It <laughs> just it blew my mind that people would would put up with that, and not only put up with it without rising up, 
uh, in a big way. But voting back in, it just, my head exploded. Do you, how that happened. Do you think that might prove the point of selection versus election? Very possibly, yeah. Yeah, very possibly. Very possibly. I mean, apparently Joe Biden couldn't fill even a medium-sized hall when he was campaigning to be president, but he got 81 million votes. Yeah. So tell me how that happens. I don't he, know. He can barely string two words together that are coherent. So Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> so can you oh, run yeah. down the series of events um, on the day that the stockade occurred and the ensuing fight with the, the soldiers? What actually occurred on that fateful day? Yes, I haven't. I haven't exactly got a, a timeline as such, but it's the next best thing. Um, let me check through. Basically, the miners before, before I won't start on the actual day, but the miners formed something called the Ballarat Reform League. This was in November of 1854. Now, remember that the actual battle was um, on December the third, 1854. Um, which, as I speak to you now, it's the 169th anniversary of that date is one week away. Next Sunday is December 3rd. This is 2023. Um, so in November, a month before that happened, uh, more than 10,000 miners met and formed the Ballarat Reform League, which is basically just, I suppose, a union, you'd call it a union, that wanted reform of these sort of laws. They, they presented a list of demands to um, Charles Hotham, who was the Lieutenant Governor of Victoria at the time. Um, Hotham began a royal commission to look into the miners' grievances, but they didn't want to be seen to giving in to a rabble, what they called a rabble or a bunch of dirty, cursing miners who didn't hold their pinkies out when they're drinking tea and all this sort of thing. Um, but what <laughs> what Hotham did, with he was given money to do the royal commission and look into the miners' grievances. He took that money and instead of uh, putting it towards the miners' cause, he used it to summon reinforcements from Melbourne, both troopers and police. You've got to remember that um, <laughs> an interesting fact, when the gold rush first happened, uh, all but two of Melbourne's 40 police officers resigned and they went to <laughs> join the gold rush. So you've got 38 blokes went, that's it, I'm out, okay, bye. And they went up. <laughs> so the police force was suddenly understaffed and they had to take whatever the applicants they could get uh, many of whom, as we said, were ex-convicts and a lot of them could be easily corrupted. So um, so anyway, that's that's uh, that's a fact that uh, is pretty relevant when you think of the types of men who were police officers, the types of men who were writing down these diggers and, and beating them up, wanting to see their licence. So the Ballarat Reform League was a miners' lobby, basically, and the League's founding charter proclaims that and I'm quoting, it is the inalienable right of every citizen to have a voice in making the laws he is called upon to obey, unquote. And that also, in much in the language of the United States Declaration of Independence, they also said that taxation without representation is tyranny. It's, it's the same cause that the, uh, the American Revolution was fought over, one of the main ones anyway. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, the Gold Commissioner, there was a commissioner put in charge of the gold fields by the Crown, by the government, the uh, colonial government, and his name was Robert Reed. Um, he was pretty paranoid. He said that the, uh, the diggers' campaign against the licence hunts and against the licence fees was nothing more than, quote, a mere cloak to cover a democratic re revolution, unquote. So he was actually afraid of democracy. 
It didn't, they, don't, they didn't want democracy because it was a, a monarchy, obviously. They don't want the lower classes voting and saying yeah. what they want. Especially when you hear terms like um, taxation is theft and you hear a lot of things mm. parroted from the example of the War of Independence, that probably would have sent shockwaves through the, the colony amongst the aristocracy and leading all the way to the governor who would have uh, very, been told very quickly to do something about this. Exactly. Yes, we, we do not want happening here what happened over there in America in 1776. We've got to crush that. And, in fact, another quote from Reed, this gold commissioner, he said that the government forces stood ready to, quote, crush them and the democratic agitation at one blow, unquote. So he's making it pretty clear. There's not too many ways you can interpret that. They are anti-democratic. They don't want the people to have a voice or a vote. And obviously the, the miners felt that that was a little bit unfair, and rightly so. So um, now there's a fellow who is crucial to this whole thing. We haven't mentioned him yet. His name was Peter Lawler. Uh, now you might see his name. It's L-A-L-O-R. Most people say Layla. It's actually Lawler for the sake of getting the pronunciation right. Um, he was elected. He didn't step forward to... to take over, but he was elected by the men as, um, I, I suppose, the leader of their so-called rebellion. I'm going to come back to the word rebellion in a minute. But um, there were several men. Lawler was the, the main the main fellow who, who, was, uh, who stood up to um, lead the men in their cause. Um, again, just give me a second here. Um, what happened in late November was tens of thousands of miners. And just to take that in, this wasn't 200 people. It was tens of thousands of men and women were there. They came together and they burnt their licenses, their mining licenses. They said, we've had enough. You can stick your licenses. We're chucking them in the fire. We're not doing this anymore. And they raised their own flag, which was then and has been called the Australian flag, which of course is the one, the Eureka Stockade flag. Um, now I know this isn't a visual podcast i know you can see me drew and i can see you you'll see the flag behind me we know what it looks like any international listeners just just google the eureka flag um and you'll see it's uh, it's a basically a vertical and horizontal cross with five stars on a dark blue background yeah i'll pop it so, up on the uh the cover art for the episode as well so this sure, is what yeah. is often referred to as australia's uh version of the Confederate flag by a lot of groups because of its more modern day connotations with certain demographics. Yeah. Unfortunately so, because yeah. at its time, I would say it's more of a akin to the, Amer- the original American flag that was raised for the war of independence. I'd say it's, it's more akin to that. Imagine all these people coming together, voicing their concerns about their lives and pushing back against a monarchy and bringing their own flag into the equation. That's self-determining government. That's democracy. That's the people coming together under one banner that they've created for themselves. Um, mm. And for the Americans, that the stars that are on it are referenced to the Southern Cross, which is within our um, southern part of the, the hemisphere. So we say that instead of yours, and they've incorporated that into the original flag. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a fantastic flag. And, and may I state, here unequivocally that that I personally have no connection to any of the far-right movements that have hijacked this flag for their own, whether it's neo-Nazi or white supremacist or whatever you want to call it, um, movements. And even the more violent trade union movements have, have sort of um, uh, 
hijack i suppose or appropriated they've weaponized it and and they have they've taken the 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 glory and the historical significance of this event and used it for their own means and i'd like to come back to that um around the union movements and their use of it a little bit later on but keep going with the Mm. series of events Sure. sure yeah yeah well the um the flag how it got designed it's it's it is a matter of a lot of things about the history of eureka and the rebellion there um are a little bit unclear a little bit muddy but uh, I mean, it's, it's, if, you, if you step back far enough, you can say, well, how do we know any of this actually happened? If you want to be really, not maybe not cynical, but, um, you know, do we know any of it happened? At some point you have to say, okay, well, we, have, we do have at least one really good uh, eyewitness account. And I'll just grab this book to my left. It's written, it was published the year after the stockade, so 1855. It's written by a fellow with the wonderful name of Raffaello Carboni. Okay. <laughs> he was an Italian man, a uh, multilingual man. He spoke like five languages, French, Italian, uh, obviously English, um, Latin, and I think German. A uh, very educated man. He'd been educated in Rome. He wrote a book called The Eureka Stockade. And it, as I say, it was published just one year afterwards. And he was there. He was a miner. He was a friend of Peter Lawler. Uh, and many of the men who were instrumental in this uprising. And he wrote his um, eyewitness account, in, wrote it down in a book. That is uh, a crucial primary source for uh, for what went on. And I have, I'll have i be honest with you, I have not read the entire book, but I've read large sections of it. And he seems to me, it just, this isn't proof, but it has the ring of truth to it as you read his things, primarily because if he doesn't know something he says, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see this happen, but I heard that such and such happened. So he's quite willing, rather than put himself in the middle, if you wanted to write a book and aggrandize yourself, you would say, oh, yes, I was there and I helped stitch the flag and I was by Peter Lawler and by his side when this happened. He doesn't do that, Raffaello. Wonderful man with a very apparently honest account. And I would recommend that book as to anyone who is interested in it as a, um, a very good first-hand source uh, Raffaello Carboni, his name is, and uh, it's. I think it's still available. My, my copy came from 1983. It was published when there was a mini series came out in uh, 1984 on Australian television, and I believe it was shown in the US too. It was called the Eureka Stockade, and of course it had Brian Brown in it. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> everything Australian? Um, and it wasn't bad either. It was a four part mini series. It was it was pretty good. Um, while we're on the topic of films, they, they had actually made a film back in 1949. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Ealing Studios in England. They made a lot of comedies and light dramas and some histories and some war films and that sort of thing, very famous studios and very English. And they made a film called Eureka Stockade, um, starring Chips Rafferty, if you know Chips Rafferty at all, very fine Australian character actor. Uh, Peter Finch was in it, who later went on to Hollywood fame and was in a film called Network. Um, which, by the way, is where that wonderful line comes from, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, if you've ever heard that oh, film. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That line. yes. Yeah, well, interesting, <laughs> that, that applies to, that was the miners' attitude exactly, if I can do a tenuous link back <laughs> to uh, Eureka Stockade, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So these miners had had enough and they burnt their licences. See what I did there? I'm getting back to your question now. <laughs> <laughs> um, they burnt their licences, they raised their own flag, who designed the flag? We don't know. Um, it could possibly have been a Canadian man called uh, 
Captain Henry Ross, I believe was his name. Um, it's not sure. There's a romantic story that the, the, the diggers' wives and the various women sewed it from, um, they used their petticoats from to, to form the white parts of the flag, which was the stars and the horizontal vertic, um, vertical cross. Um, and the blue of the miners' shirts, they wore dark blue shirts, obviously, because it doesn't, they don't show the grit and the grime and the sweat and the mud as like a white coloured shirt would. Um, there is some good basis of fact in that, that the, the lighter material in the flag, which still exists, we'll get to that later, um, the material in the white part of the flag is, flag is um, very fine material, such as you would find on petticoats. Anyway, leave that there for the moment. The, the miners held a meeting on the 29th of November at Bakery Hill, a place called Bakery Hill, and it was there that the newly created Eureka flag was flown for the very first time. And the government responded to that with another digger hunt, a particularly nasty one and, and um, a lot of abuse and a lot of beatings and that sort of thing. So um, what the miners did, they barricaded themselves inside a makeshift timber stockade made of just old carts and timber. And the definition of a stockade is, is where you've got posts sunk into the ground to create a, like a fence. Um if you're in the military, the stockade is not where you want to be because it's the prison. <laughs> but in this, it's just a military word for prison. You get thrown in the stockade. This was a stockade such as just to create a barrier, a fenced-off area. And it wasn't supposed to be particularly defensive. I mean, musket bulls could fire through it. It wasn't like a brick wall or anything. It was just to, just to mark off an area and say, this is ours. This is where we're taking our stand. And um, that was where they, they pledged an allegiance, an oath of allegiance to the Southern Cross. And that's where Peter Lawler was elected as their representative. So this is a couple of days, November 29th, uh, a couple of days before the, um, the skirmish or the battle. Now, Peter Lawler's words on that day in early December, he said, and I'm quoting here, it is my duty now to swear you in. He's talking to many, many people here, many, many miners, thousands of them. It's my duty now to swear you in, he said, and to take with you the oath to be faithful to the Southern Cross. Now hear me with attention. The man who, after this solemn oath, does not stand by our standard, meaning the flag, is a coward at heart. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties, unquote. So that was, that was their stand, and what they had to stand to swear by was the Southern Cross. That was the symbol of their their rights, uh, their um yeah their rights. So Lawler instructed blacksmiths who were there, many blacksmiths on around the gold fields. They were instructed to forge weapons known as pikes. Uh, now, if anyone out there doesn't know what a pike is, it is it is a dirty great big stick, like a, a big uh, like a broomstick, and on the end of it is a combination sort of axe and big pointy thing. It's like an axe <laughs> spear, uh, isn't it? You see, the, the Swiss Guard tend to have them a lot in the Vatican. True story, yes. Very, very long, very uh, formidable sort of weapons. And you could use them as an axe or you could strike with them like a spear. Now, where this came from, um, back in Ireland, at the um, in 1798 in Ireland, they had a massive uprising against the English and there was a, a battle fought, fought at a place called Vinegar Hill. And um, if anyone out there knows... Uh, a song called The Rising of the Moon, a very old Irish folk song, and it's about the um, the rebellion of 98. 
and it has the line that the pikes must be together at the rising of the moon. That was their main weapon. They didn't have guns at that point. Some of them did in, in Ireland, but they used pikes. So uh, being that the Irish were so represented at Eureka, um, Lawless said, let's make some pikes. They had guns. They had pistols. But they were the miners at Eureka were drastically under, undergunned, underarmed, if shall we say. That's the wrong word. They were outgunned, to put it this way, outgunned by the government forces well and truly and outnumbered as well. Um, and no, I'm sorry. I'll take that back. At first, the diggers outnumbered the government forces. And that's important to note. I, sorry, I misspoke there. Well, they, the, quickly, uh, they rather quickly mobilised more forces to that point, didn't they? They did, but there are a couple of things that then swung swung the balance back to the government's favour. We'll get to that in a tick. Um, there had been, this is important too, there had been um, a rebellion in 1804, so half a century earlier, at Castle Hill in New South Wales by a small force of Irish convicts and they fought a battle with the government forces of what, what became known as the Second Battle of Vinegar Hill, the first one having been in 1798 in Ireland, the Second Battle of Vinegar Hill in uh, Castle Hill, New South Wales. And um, many of the convicts who took part in that battle at Vinegar Hill in, in uh, Castle Hill in New South Wales were convicts who had been involved in the previous uprising in Ireland. So um, the reason that's crucial is because the word of this diggers' rebellion at Eureka began to spread to other towns and gold fields like Ballarat. Uh, sorry, I should say like Bendigo. We're in Ballarat. Eureka Stockade is in the town of Ballarat. Bendigo is um, several kilometres, I don't know, away. I can't remember how far it is. Not not far. Forest Creek is another town. Creswick is another town where miners came from those towns. They heard the, of Eureka's uprising. The word spread and they, they said, well, we're going to go down there and help them. So the diggers left their diggings and their, their claims uh, and rode or walked down towards Ballarat to help out the diggers in the uprising. And um, it could have been somewhere between 500 and 1,000 men from the other towns. But when what happened was that when the news circulated that um, Irish independence was a major factor in the uprising at Eureka, a lot of these men said, oh, okay, well, we don't really necessarily want to be involved in that because for whatever their own personal reasons were, they were willing to do it for their own miners' rights. But when it got politicised, as they saw it getting politicised, uh, a lot of the people said, no, we, don't, we won't fight for that. That's not our cause. That's a whole other thing. They went back to their diggings, back to Bendigo and Creswick and Forest Creek and wherever. What a fascinating parallel with the what you would say the truth of movement is today. It happened mm. during COVID where people from multiple different ethnic groups, different races, religions, different um, classes in Australia all came together against government overreach during COVID. And then closer towards the end of it, you start to see that fracturing over um, political lines and different ideas, what they want to achieve. Yeah. So the whole idea of the the Irish um, independence taking priority, what they deemed was taking priority, forced a lot of people out. And you've kind of seen that happen in Australia recently, um, politically, in our own nation. Indeed. That's, there is a, a very true parallel there. And um, one of the things that really cemented it for them was that, unfortunately, Peter Lawler uh, needed a password to get people round the diggings. He needed something to make sure that 
that the men they were letting in and out of the stockade were actual diggers and not spies, because definitely the government had spies in there. And uh, as we said before, convicts can be sometimes can be easily corrupted. So the government paid people to go in, find out what they could and come back. And, of course, they'd do it for a jug of rum, some of them. Uh, but Peter Lawler's password that he chose, unfortunately, in some ways, was Vinegar Hill, which, of course, had was loaded with Irish meaning and Irish uh, rebel meaning. Um, and when a lot of people heard this password, they went, hang on, what have we become a, an Irish independence movement now? That's not what this is. This is minus. This is Australia. This is whatever. So you can kind of see how a lot of them would say, no, I don't want to be, that's not my cause. I'm not, I'm not associating myself with that. Even some Irish folks said this, apparently. It just it just changed the focus a bit too much for some people, some of the miners. So it was so a bit they, unfortunate. Sorry, you go, Stella. Yeah. Um, so they didn't really have the foresight, I guess, of how fighting for this could actually be beneficial for them in the future. It became more of a a, so, a split a national split, I guess. Yeah. That'd be right. Yeah, you, you could say that. Yeah, well, like like Drew said then, when when something gets politicised and, and drawn to a particular party, like mm. during some of the protests during COVID and that, um, if one particular political party or belief or whatever you want to call it had started to rise up, many people would have said, well, no, I'm not. that's not what I'm protesting here for, for that party. I'm not part of that. I'm just saying government back off. So, you know, when other causes come in, some people back off. And it's understandable. Yeah. A very a very real um reference that's happening right now is protests happening all over the Western world um in regards to what's happening in Gaza. So mm. you have a whole heap of people protesting um the bombings of the Gaza Strip, and then you get a very small vocal minority who are saying horrendous things like gas or juice. And that makes mm. people in that whole bigger bigger thing go, Well, hang on, we're not actually a part of that. We just don't want them to bomb children. We don't want to be associated Precisely, with that. Yeah. Yeah, very good parallel. And and often I think those, well, okay, it makes you wonder if some of the people who are running around saying those sort of horrible things like gas all Jews or kill this people, kill that people, are they sent in mm-hmm. as, you know, as deliberate, well, I suppose you'd say controlled opposition or yeah, just let's, people. Let's call them wedges because they're designed wedges, to go yeah. in and split people up. Fox exactly. in the hen house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. To, um, Divide and conquer, I suppose, if you can. And that's, that's exactly what happened at Eureka. This, the, the political side of things came into it and a lot of people went, no, not my cause. I can't really support that. I'm a minor and that's all I care about. So yeah, they turned back, a lot of them. Um, I will reference here, there's a great book that I came across and I haven't had time to read it. I only found it a couple of days ago. It's from 1903, written by a bloke called William Craig, and it's called My Adventures on the Australian Goldfields. And the reason is why it's important to what we're talking about today is he, he um, as I said, I haven't read the whole thing, but uh, it's available at uh, archive.org um, as a fully full text of it, downloadable as a PDF, which I've done, but I, as I said, I only found it two days ago. I haven't read it yet. But he does talk about Eureka in that. Uh, he has a whole chapter devoted to what went on there, and I've, I have skimmed through that. But it's a good little book. Just as a side note, anyone who's interested, it's available free. Um I googled it and found a original 1903 copy in in Tasmania, which was something like 130 dollars, and uh, couldn't quite stretch to it, especially not when a free PDF was available. So um, that's available anyway. My Adventures on the Australian Goldfields by William Craig. Anyway, just chucking that out there. Um, so the police troopers, getting back to the timeline, police troopers have been reinforced. 
by men from the 12th and the 40th regiments of the British, British Army, who many of them marched up from Melbourne. Um, on the night of Saturday, December 2nd, so that's the evening before the battle, many of the diggers had left the stockade because they assumed that the troops would not attack on the Sabbath day, being obviously being the Sunday at that time. But at 4.20, I believe it was 4.20 a.m., not the good 4.20 you want to celebrate. This was not a nice 4.20. 4.20 a.m. on uh, Sunday, December the 3rd, when there were less than about 200 men in the compound in the Eureka Stockade itself, the troops did attack. And the reason they did it, obviously, was because they um, knew that the diggers would be uh, unprepared. And and rather than being... Um, I mean, let's face it, it was good military tactics, if you've ever read anything to do with, like, uh, Sun Tzu, the art of war. Ambush has been used for since day dot, um, especially by troops that were, um, if you were outnumbered, your best bet is is to ambush uh, your enemy when they least expect it. So um, a lot of the men, as I say, had left the stockade on a Saturday night to go back to their own tents, their own maybe families or just their own tents, and this swung the odds in the government's favour about three to one. Whereas before, when the stockade was full of troopers, the odds were about 25 to 1 in the troop in the miners' favour. So I think I misspoke and said the stockade full of troopers. I should have said miners. Um, it was 25 to 1 in the miners' favour. But then Saturday night, oh, we'll go back to our own tents. We'll just hang out there. They won't attack on Sunday. Well, they did. <laughs> Early in the morning, 20 past 4 in the morning. Right. So nobody's fully awake. We've got guards, but it just would have been... A very rude awakening indeed. And it's very easy to, 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 to um, dismiss this as, oh, it was just a skirmish. Well, especially when you look at the numbers of the Sunday, around. people yeah, just, yeah. They, 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 a lot of people that I know, and unfortunately I've seen it in public schools being taught that it was only the 200 odd men. There was no one else. That was it. It was just a few rabble rousers that yeah. thought they should have better um, working conditions and better pay and whatnot. But like what you've just told us, it was men and women from multiple parts of the state, if not the colony at that time, were coming to support this. And if it wasn't for a few um, choices or a few misspoken terminologies around the Vinegar Rebellion or the Vinegar um, Vinegar Hill Hill battles, it could have turned it a a very different way. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. The miners were a, a force to be reckoned with. There was... As we said before, there was could have been 10,000 of them. Uh, there was at certain points at certain meetings, there were 10,000 or more miners. Now, how many of those miners would be willing to pick up a gun and actually fight um, is, is debatable. Some of them might have said, you know, well, I, I'm not really into the violence thing. In fact, a lot of them, there was a fellow called uh, Humphrey, not Humphrey, but Humphrey, who him, he, he was sort of leading a group of miners who were more into what they called the moral force. They wanted to appeal to the authorities uh, and and sort of talk them around, reason with them, which is very admirable. And I won't say it was stupid, but when you you can't reason with, with brute force. Not especially you know, on that not in that time. <laughs> no, that time that was a no. world ruled by brute force and violence. Even then Absolutely. Absolutely. And and arguably still is. Um, and you just couldn't as admirable as it was you couldn't reason with them and then talk them out of this. So uh, unfortunately Humphrey's tactics fell by the wayside and even the miners recognized this in the end. They were like, no, no, shut up. The time's gone for talking. We've got to pick up pikes and guns. 
and um, do something physical to that's the only language they understand, and you fall back on that whole thing. Um, which brings up the massive question of really of, of, of when is enough enough? And is it ever okay to pick up arms, take up arms against a force and, and fight and possibly take human lives? What do you do as a, if you are quote, a decent person, unquote, whatever that might mean, you're not a murderer. You don't you're not a violent person, but you've had enough. When, do you pick up an art? Do you ever pick up a rifle and fight back? Or do you just give in? Or how do you? It's, it's a question ult- each of us can only answer in our own hearts. Yeah, it's, it's, it's morally objective, isn't it? Depending on your circumstances and your own personal how beliefs dictate what occurs. Like you said, there were people yeah. who were well prepared to do that. There were people who were more philosophically aligned with wanting to go through it in the eyes of democracy and a moral code, mm. which for that time definitely wasn't going to work for them. I've got a follow up question right. for you. Like we, yeah. History says now it's it's sealed, it's written. This rebellion didn't it didn't come into fruition for the miners' favor. It was quashed quite quickly in comparison to other rebellions and other um uh pushback against governments around the world. Let's take into consideration a what if scenario. Let's pretend that Peter um, Lawler didn't use Vinegar Hill as a keyword, that people mm. didn't try and use this as a, a mechanism for Irish um, rebellion and autonomy. Let's pretend that those 10,000 more uh, miners were there, they armed themselves, they were ready, and they actually fought mm. off the troopers that arrived from Melbourne. What do you think could have been the potential catalyst for the rest of the colony and a, an alternate future? What could have occurred? Well, strangely, probably wouldn't have been massively different. I'm speculating here, okay? This is my opinion only. I'll state that up front. I don't know is the ultimate answer. I don't know. Nobody does. But strangely, I don't think it would have been necessarily too different to what actually did occur because ultimately, in one sense, you could say that the miners won, even though they lost the battle. Uh, Now, this was, as we said, you can call it a skirmish, which sort of tends to underplay it. There were... Figures vary, but something like 22 miners and about eight troopers were killed um, at this battle. Some of them were wounded and died later. Others were wounded and recovered, including Peter Lawler. Peter Lawler had a a bullet go through his, um, and two fragments or two other bullets, he's not sure, um, through his left arm, and he later lost that arm and had to be amputated. Um, Now, remember, this is 1854. There's no anaesthetic. So it's seven years before the Civil War, American Civil War. So um, it, the casualties were fairly slight. And if you were a military-type person, a general or something, you'd say, well, that's not a battle. You had 30 people killed. What are you talking about? Just, that's barely a skirmish. It's a modern-day mass it, shooting. Yeah, pretty much. That's right. But it was it was a battle, let's face it. And um, the, the miners were massively outgunned, as we are today, um, still, because the government have all the, the might and the weapons and they're drastically trying to reduce everyone else's right to to uh, own guns and whatever. Even in America with the Second Amendment, they're coming under fire there, no pun intended. Um, but ultimately the miners won, and we'll, we'll get into that if you want me to go into that now as a timeline thing, following on from the battle. Um, as we said, the skirmish was uh, very brief. It was only about 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes. Uh Reports vary. Somewhere between 20 and 60 miners were killed and another 113 were arrested. Okay. 
somewhere between five and eight soldiers also lost their lives. I'm, I've read there is one woman in amongst the miners who was killed as well. It is a bit cloudy. It is different sources, and it's, it's very unsure exactly uh, how many died. There were a couple who died um, but weren't counted because they weren't ever active parts of that of the movement, of the uprising itself. They never swore allegiance to the Southern Cross. They never whatever. But they were killed in, I guess, crossfire somehow. Yes. So, so you, I guess I guess it's sort of how they are categorised as participants, aren't they? Um, exactly. I'm just reading here, Captain Thomas would describe it as a trifling affair. Yeah, there you how go. How very British. Mm. Yeah, it's a trifling affair. So, Easy to so, say when you're sitting there eating cucumber sandwiches. Exactly. I'm gonna. Yeah. So going back to the idea of a what if scenario. Yes. Sorry, we can broach that yeah, as much. That, as you that's want. okay. That's all right. Um, I'd like to go a bit more optimistic. I'm a, I'm a bit more of a romanticist around history. I just find it utterly fascinating and the things that could have occurred if certain things had changed. So in the situation <laughs> where the the miners were successful in this case, I have a feeling that would have. And in my own mind, of course, this is just my own opinion, that it could have been start, the start of a catalyst for a broader rebellion against the monarchy within Victoria, or the, well, what mm. is in the other state of Victoria, and at yep. the very least could have <clears throat> resulted in the independence um, of a state or country here, purely just based on the fact that the British Empire was so broad and spread so thin across other conflicts around the world. So just going through mm. a couple of a a couple of events and wars that happened prior to the Uric Stockade and after and during. So there was a second Anglo-Sikh War of 1848 to 1849. Uh, There was the Eighth Zhao War, uh, Meijing's War. There's the Taipei Rebellion from 1850 to 1864. The Second Anglo-Burmese War, 1852 to 53. The Crimean War, 1853 to 1856. Second Opium War, Anglo-Persian Wars. There's a lot going on for the British Empire. And my initial Absolutely. thought would be if there's that many conflicts happening in spread out across the empire, would it be a massive concern to give up ground on one small area to a bunch of undesirables and Irish and con- uh, convicts? Would that have been a big thing for them to let go? That's the question. I think there was a lot mm. of things happening at that time. That <clears throat> if the stockade had went in the miners' favour not losing that that skirmish, that battle, mm. I think Australia's map could look very different today. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's, um, well, Victoria had not long gained independence from New South Wales as a separate colony. Mm. Um, not that New South Wales were trying to lord it over Victoria, but they'd <laughs> said, okay, no, we're, we're, a, we're now a separate land. You're New South Wales, we're Victoria. And um, that hadn't happened too long in, in the past when the events we're talking about were transpiring. So yeah, I agree with you. It could have been very different if they'd won. I guess yeah, you've got a you've got a hill. You've got a lot of miners waving their guns and shouting, "Yay, we won!" What happens then? Well, you're right. Every empire in history has found that the more ground they take, the more they have to defend. That's mm-hmm. pretty obvious. And it's like keeping a hundred ping pong balls all underwater at once with just your hands. It gets very difficult. And at some point, that's what what killed the Roman Empire. They just spread so far out that they couldn't reach any further with their arms and things collapsed. Um, and the, the busy Goths, the Goths, whoever else came in, the barbarians came in and, and the Roman Empire was no more. And the British Empire kind of pretty much suffered the same fate for slightly different reasons. That's a yeah. huge statement. But Death by a thousand cuts, realistically, that's kind of how indeed. it happens. Indeed. So 
But ultimately, in a way, even though it's the classic case of lose the battle, win the war, um, the miners did lose that skirmish. But out of all that... Um, Would you say they won the war for the national psyche of what Australia is today? How Australians root for the underdog, we try to give everyone a fair go, we always stand up for the downtrodden, like as our, as our mentality as a nation, would you say that's how they won through the generations think, of their ancestors? That's the myth, isn't it? I, mm. I hesitate to say that this is not true, but we like to believe that we do that, we stand up for the underdog and always help out the, the one who needs help. I think, we, I think we virtue signal that we do. Yes, absolutely. We say it, but we don't put it into practice. Not, not always, not always. Um, and less now than ever before, really. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I don't like thinking about it because I, I do like to believe the myth, of course, uh, that we that we are all for the underdog. But as a, as a reasonable thinker, I, I can't <laughs> just stand back and say that's what Australians do. We're always fair go. No, not always. But um, that certainly is something in the psyche, in the national psyche of, of underdogism, for want of a better term, <laughs> giving everyone a fair go, all that sort of thing. Um, I, w- I would venture to say that probably more at like very ground levels, like in, in just in personal relationships or within yes. small communities, that is definitely, I would say, how we would describe ourselves, but on a more national level, maybe not. Yeah, I don't know if it's greater or lesser than any other nation, Russians or Americans or Chinese folks, or English, I don't know. But um, it certainly is part of the psyche, and it's it's the fair go is a, is a cliche in Australia, isn't it? It's probably the case of Australia as its own its own nation has a very short history. We're very young yeah. in the game when it comes to the rest of the geopolitical sphere of the world, so we naturally would almost romanticise and overdo this this national psyche, this idea of how we see ourselves, because we're almost deifying what occurred and making yeah. out like it's a bigger part of our country than it actually is in some ways? Yeah, yeah. If we're going to look at it honestly, um, we need to avoid the whole thing of the big bad empire and the, the, the big bad troopers versus the, the virtuous, uh, you know, almost, well, Christian miners who are standing up for the right and, and they're, they're all completely right and they're all morally uh, in um, unapproachable. You know, That's not true. At all, it was it was a bit of this, a bit of that. If we're looking at it realistically, certainly the the government forces were, were overreaching, and their their violence was um, was uncalled for. They didn't need to beat up the miners when they couldn't produce their licences. They didn't need to charge so much for the miners' licences to be such a crippling charge. But um, there's also that whole thing of they didn't want a whole lot of nouveau riche people. They didn't want miners, people from the lower classes. You see. Uh, becoming quite wealthy and becoming the new Rouge, you see. We don't want that because they're not, they don't have the right bloodline. So if you've got a whole bunch of rich new millionaires, um, that's not something the Empire necessarily wanted. Yeah. So think, they, that was part of a reason why they're trying to keep them down. Yeah, I think the the British Empire were angry enough that there was a squatocracy in, in the colony <laughs> more than anywhere else where random people kind of moved in and just took land for themselves early that's on, right. at least anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it. it's a very interesting take that fundamentally there's there was no democracy then it was just the monarchy it was the rule of the crown and morally from our own perspective today we think they're completely justified in everything they did because you know they were they were downtrodden they were treated horribly they were overcharged for things they weren't actually making a decent living 
but we don't even reflect on our own idea of what democracy in Australia is today. We think that because we're mm-hmm. in the we're in this brand new age of freedoms and democracy, air quotes, that the same things aren't happening to us. Might be at a lesser extent. It might be spread out across multiple as, um, aspects of life today, but there's still definitely an aspect of government overreach happening within our own lives, but we don't see it in the same lens as we did the people of the stockade. Mm. Absolutely. I think, well, there was, obviously, as you said, we were a much we were a much younger country then. Things weren't as set in stone. Um, everything was new. The frontier was there. I mean, in America, if you were willing to go west, you could just literally stake a claim. This is my land now. And um, right or wrong in regards to the Native Americans and, and pushing them off, off what they saw as their land, which they had often taken from other tribes anyway. Well, you've got you to recognise that too, that um, it's nobody's land really. It's Everyone seems to sit somewhere and say, this is mine. Someone stronger comes along and says, no, get off, that's mine now. And then someone else stronger than them comes in. It keeps changing hands. So whose land is it? It's, land only belongs to the person who's strong enough to hold it. That's the, exactly, the, the history is, of wars, empires, battles, whatever you want to call them. That's yeah. the that's defining factor, whoever's strong enough to hold it. That seems to be the, the human thing, isn't it? Might is right. That if, if I've got more guns or more clubs or more stones than you, I can take your land. Exactly. Uh, and not, yeah, and no. look. Look at Antarctica, for example. I mean, that's all been split up by somebody who decided that they are going to split it up and they've got the say. But they're very um, democratic. They're not even allowed to go one, there. Yeah, they, they're fine with that one. They could disagree on everything else geopolitically, but, you know, Antarctica, they can all agree on it. That one's fine. <laughs> yeah. long as long that's as us right. peasants never go there, that's Yes, that's good. right. Well, virtually no bugger wants to go there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to, I I want to see that. the hole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. So look, um, what happened after the, the, the skirmish? Um, as I said, Peter, Lo- Peter Lawler was um, severely wounded, uh, resulting in the amputation of his left arm, uh, I think midway between the elbow and the shoulder. And one thing I wanted to state was that you've got to remember in this time what they were using was muskets and pistols that fired something called what became known as a mini ball which is, is a bit of a misnomer because there was nothing much mini about them. They were invented by a Frenchman whose name I think was Charles. I don't remember his first name, but his last name was Minier. I think is how you say it, M-I-N-I-E, with an accent on the E. So it became anglicised as mini. And they, it was a, a big, I think they were around about a .57 calibre. We're talking sort of almost elephant gun calibre of, of projectile. Fired through a musket, which does not have rifling on the barrel. It's just fired through a tube, Force, notoriously yes. inaccurate. Yeah, it's very inaccurate. But when they hit you, they there was they didn't just go through like a lot of the later projectiles and um, and bullets of our day and age. Uh, they, these these things were if they hit bone, they would shatter the bone uh, to the point where medicine even today would just look at it and go, "We can't fix that. That's Amputate. that's got to come off." Amputate was the best yeah. they could do. That's it. You'll be lucky, you're out. lucky if you're hitting a limb back then, I think, because if it was a centre mass, you're pretty much done for. Very slow yeah, agonising death. Yeah, if you were gut shot or anything. But, uh, yeah, but these things shattered arms and shattered legs and femurs and everything, as they found out only a few short years later in the American Civil War when they were using the same projectiles. So if you're heading into a fight in those days, and, and medicine was, was nowhere in terms of no aesthetics. The aesthetic was rum, basically, or you might be lucky enough to get some ether. 
So you were, you, you know, if you were heading into a fight, you were either um, one of three things. You're either mad if you're walking towards this sort of battle or very convinced of your cause or Irish, <laughs> <laughs> um, which, as we said, a lot of them were. So this was nothing to be sneezed at, this sort of, if you're willing to stand up and fight for these things, this was this was life-shattering stuff. Obviously, any war can take your life, but this the wounds caused by these things were just horrible. That's what cost Lawler his arm. So after after that all happened, Commissioner Reed, the Gold Commissioner of the Goldfields, he declared martial law. All resistance from the miners collapsed. They either left in great hurries or they were arrested. A lot of them gave themselves in. Um, only 13 miners were taken to Melbourne to stand trial for uh, high treason. And Governor Hotham called for a Goldfields Commission of Inquiry on December 7th, 1854. So that's only four days after the, the skirmish. Um, now, here's a big here's a big point. The newspapers of the day mostly sympathised with the miners, as opposed to today where the government seems to have great control of the media and can feed the narrative and push the narrative through their newspapers and TV or whatever. In, in those days, the newspapers were, were the media. That was it. No television, no radio, just newspapers. And they mostly sympathised with the diggers' cause. And thousands and thousands of people came out on the streets of Melbourne to protest what had happened at Eureka, the fact that they'd heard the government just stormed in, shot down a bunch of miners and completely overreached their position. And uh, there were massive protests. Uh, one newspaper editor served a three-month sentence for sedition, for publishing, you know, at what was seen as anti-government sentiment. But all of the 13 miners, every one of them who were tried for high treason, were acquitted. And one historian noted that he, he said no jury could be found willing to convict those arrested. So that's that's a pretty telling, uh, I suppose, statistic or fact that uh, there was no one who was willing to stand up and say these miners are guilty. Everyone said, as you mentioned before, Drew, they were for the underdog. These guys were just fighting for their rights, which ultimately they were. Um, so Hotham's commission, the, the, the Royal Commission, I suppose you'd call it today, uh, was sympathetic to the miners um, as well as the newspapers. They criticised the government's heavy-handed actions on the gold fields, and that commission ultimately resulted in um, universal male suffrage or the right to vote. Uh, in the colony of Victoria, which is why Eureka has been called the birthplace of Australian democracy, because out of that battle and out of that whole stand that the miners took, not just the battle, but the whole uprising, um, came, uh, yeah, universal male suffrage. Anyone over, I believe, 21 um, could vote in Australia now. So, And also, another crucial thing that happened, the miners' licence system was abolished, so they, they won that point. That was one of the main things that they rose up over or rebelled against was the miners' licences and the exorbitant fees. That was all abolished, and they, a new system was set up. They still had to pay a fee, but it was called it was now called the miners' right, and it was much cheaper. It was something like five shillings a year, some say at one pound, but rather than being, I think it was, what did we say, 30 shillings a month, it was five shillings a year. So it was drastically reduced and reachable now that people could pay that. Um, and they also gained the right to vote, as we said, and they also, the miners had the opportunity to purchase and own, if should they wish, to purchase and own the land that they mined, which had been unheard of before because the Crown just said, no, this is ours, you can't have it. Now you could buy it should you want to. 
Um, the other thing that happened was crucial was that 12 new members were added to the Victorian Legislative Council. Four of them were appointed by the Queen and eight were elected by people who held a miners' right. In other words, obviously the miners themselves. One of the elected members was Peter Lawler himself, who had become something of a public hero uh, through the, the newspapers and the word of mouth and everything. He was elected to the Victorian Legislative Council and had quite a long career in there, speaking for, um, one would assume, the common people. Uh, and another was the Welshman named John Basson Humphrey, whom I referred to before as the one who was pushing the moral right rather than the picking up arms and fighting. He wanted to talk them out of it. It didn't work. Nonetheless, he ended up uh, elected to the Legislative Council. And strangely, there is some evidence that later in his life, Peter Lawler ended up supporting what these days we would probably call big business or corporations in, in certain... Interesting. Um, yeah, I can't trace a lot of that. I looked into it, couldn't find it. I sort of ran out of time to find out more about that. But I, I did uh, I did read that later in his life, he, he often took a position that would support, for want of a better word, so, the rich over the poor. Did ultimately, like you said, they, they did win in essence because the yeah. legacy of what happened is... They have the, the they started to get the democracy that they never had. They had the yeah. right to vote. They had yeah. representation amongst legislative um, bodies, and yeah. it was the voice of the people that they could then present to the crown and actually have a real stake and claim in what happens in their lives. Especially for a new state like a new colony like Victoria, it was a massive thing. So you're right, and in essence, they did win. They may have lost the battle, but really, they won the war for what the democ- democratic rights they wanted were. Beyond Indeed. that, beyond that, which is the biggest outcome out of this, the birth of democracy in this country, what is the, the flow-on effect from all this? What is the, the modern-day legacy that you see, rightfully or wrongfully, of Eureka? We kind of skimmed over the virtuous signalling of what Australians think mm-hmm. we are for the underdog, that type of stuff. What about some of the, the ideas around how the union movement have like weaponized the flag, how um, some of the national socialists seem to identify with this how would you see that legacy today? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Isn't it? It's it's um, it's a shame that it's been weaponized <clears throat> into a uh, what sometimes has been a far right sort of view by some people, the national socialists or, uh, or whatever. But um, I think we we really need to claim that back and never forget that it's the Eureka flag itself and the whole the whole event was a symbol of, as we've said. the the common man, if that doesn't sound too fairy tale, fighting against the big bad government. Okay, it's very, very simplified to say that, I know. But um, ultimately, it's it's people telling government where to get off. Basically, it's probably as simple as that, if you put it put it that way. That there is. Um, I don't think most people, including myself, we don't. You've got to have rules. We don't mind rules as long as they're fair. Okay, everyone has rules. Even God has rules. He gave us the Ten Commandments, right? So they're rules. Jesus cut those down to two. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself. And I've even heard it <laughs> in very Australian way reduced to one. Uh, don't be a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> That's the great commandment, which, um, yeah, it's... There's nothing wrong with rules, and rebellion is not necessarily a bad thing. It's one of those words, isn't it, being a rebel. People love to think of themselves as a rebel. Well, 
the word rebel or rebellion is what I'd like to call a dependent noun or rebel anyways and now um, what what are you rebelling against it, it implies something you can't just be a rebel yeah because someone's going to say, well, what are you rebelling against what is it it, depend, it depends who you are because you know if you're government hmm. you're a rebel but if you're the people you're a hero so yeah, exactly even, even, interpretation. even even today i would say to the people you're rebelling against unjustness to the government you'd be classified today as a terrorist Yes, domestic terrorist in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same here probably. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, one man's one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. We've all heard yeah. that said. So the, the Eureka so, flag yeah. now it's <clears throat> no, it's it's been weaponized by small fringe groups who really do take away the ultimate message that this flag has as standing up against government overreach and tyranny. And it only just dawned on me: it's the Australian version of the Gaston flag. Don't tread on me. That's essentially yeah, what it was. New Hampshire, yeah. 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 It's, it's a perfect symbol of what Australia, Australian democracy is born out of. And I'd absolutely hate for those extreme elements to get it banned. Like Victoria, my state, has had a, has a bit of a run on at the moment of banning things. The, uh, yeah. the yeah. Roman salute was banned. The Nazi flag was banned. Rightfully, yeah. wrongfully, those things have been removed. What does it take for these small fringes to adopt this more prevalently and then that to get banned? That would be a sad day for Australian history, I believe. It would, absolutely. It, it makes you think, I mean, the minute you ban anything, people want it. You, you can't really ban stuff like that. And look at prohibition, for instance. What happened there? Just people drank more mm-hmm. and many people got rich from making liquor that would send people blind sometimes because it was <laughs> poorly produced. Yeah. Um, so it just doesn't work. You can't ban this and ban that. I get so sick of hearing people banning things. It just doesn't work. It's called yeah. the Streisand effect. It makes people want it more, yeah. like you said. Yeah, and and it, it removes uh, it removes our God given free will, which is the very essence of being a human. Mm. Indeed. Well, even down to in Australia, we've banned what they call chop chop, which is uh, illegal tobacco. Mm. Right, you can't. Uh, you, you, if you produce tobacco, you cannot grow a tobacco plant in this country and produce um, any tobacco. I looked into when I used to smoke. I've given up five years now, but when I used to smoke, I thought oh, I should try growing my own tobacco. And Googled it. You can't do it. I was amazed to find it was actually illegal. Well, there you go. Because a modern sign of government, government were getting their tax. Yeah, government <laughs> overreach again, right? And of course, that if you were to smoke your own tobacco plant that you grew yourself it's going to be a hell of a lot healthier than something that's got 10,000-odd chemicals in it. Exactly. Absolutely. I actually have a theory that uh, I'm not pushing tobacco at all. I'm glad I gave up. But uh, I have a theory that like 100 or so years ago or before that, tobacco has never been good for you, and I'm not making that case, but it probably wasn't quite as bad for you as with all the chemicals that we have now, with big business corporations, factories, all the so-called science that we have, preservatives, colorings, everything else that goes in there. What is there, something like 3,000 chemicals in a cigarette? I don't yeah, know. Something like yeah, something like that. Yeah, well, that wouldn't have been the case 100 years ago in, in Virginia or somewhere where you picked the plant, hung it up in a barn, dried it, cut it up and smoked it. There were no preservatives or anything. So, no. you know, again, that's sort of a lot healthier if you grow your own. You hit the nail on the head. It's just government's ability to tax something and have some form of control over it. It is. It's taxes, yeah, exactly. And, uh, I mean, I work in a grog shop, and it's, uh, I think I heard the other day that 47% of the price of most booze goes to the government. Yep. 47%. It keeps like going up, years. too. Tax keeps going yep. up. Mm. Yep. 
Now, surely that's something Australians would have a rebellion over, the price of beer. Should have Bloody happened well God. before now. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can actually legally make your own beer, but you can't make your own spirits. Yeah. So exactly. it's almost like, well, just give them that bit just to keep them down, you know, enough. Because if we stop the beer, then there could be a rebellion, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, I think, I believe you can make your own spirits. I have seen home brewing things for uh, whiskey, but I'm I'm not certain on that. So I won't go out on a limb and say that, but I'm pretty sure you can. Or maybe it, it might vary state by state, perhaps. Possibly. I, I think you can in Victoria. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah. Is not, this is not legal or alcohol advice, by the way. This is just my own understanding. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. And also, if you've ever tried brewing your own beer, unless you get quite good at it, which takes a while, uh, if you're like me, you try a couple of times, you end up with basically vinegar and you go, you know what, I might leave it to Coopers and Tuies and the rest of them. Who <laughs> <laughs> know what they're the doing. Experts. Yeah, yeah, and... Uh, exactly. No, I may or may not know somebody directly who um, was brewing their own moonshine. And, it, you know, I mean, you really could have filled a rocket and gone to the moon with that stuff. It was horrible. Stripped <laughs> the paint yeah, off the wall exactly. stuff of stuff, was it, Stella? Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Fire well, that's the thing. You've, you've got these things, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, even, even cannabis, even if you get down to it, opium or, or derivatives from the poppy that have been used for, for thousands of years and, and known for, I mean, beer goes back to day dot. You know, probably the first thing Adam did when he got out of the garden was sit down and goes, right, let's get some wheat and some barley and make some beer. I don't know. It goes way back. Um, and then governments step in and start saying, well, no, you can't do that. I mean, what you know, what right do they have to do that? Who put these people exactly. in a position where yeah, they that's... can tell? That's, that's really the question this whole thing yes. hinges on, Eureka and everything else. What right do a bunch of people who sometimes live thousands of miles away, what right do they have to tell us how to live? Um, that is exactly the point that we mm-hmm. we should close this episode on is mm. taking history as examples and questioning what right do these people have to even though they say that we have a democracy and we have and say things, what gives governments the right to have this overreach to dictate what we can and cannot do in our lives? Yes, laws exist, laws exist for reasons in a in a society mm. otherwise it would be complete and total anarchy. But at what point do those small little incremental laws come along to the point where you don't actually have a, a democracy? It's a fox democracy at that point. It's not real. It's mm. in the illusion in name only. You don't have it. If you can't go out and fish for yourself without a license, is that a democracy? Yeah. Can I make my own beer? No, you can't now because alcohol is illegal. We've seen this throughout <laughs> history multiple times. Prohibition, all these things yeah. governments do. They backpedal. They try it decades later. But ultimately, it comes down to control. And how much you're willing to allow someone else to have control in your life and your daily life. There it is. Yep. You hear it often. Oh, it all gets back to the almighty dollar. Well, yes, it does. But I would take it. I've always thought I'll take it one step further. These people aren't interested necessarily just in money. They're interested primarily in the control that money brings with them, which you've just said. It all gets back to control. Money is just a means to control. So really, yes, it gets back to the dollar. But why? Because if you're rich, you can tell people what to do. Power is addictive, and power yeah, corrupts indeed. absolutely. Indeed, and when you get back to the original rebellion, if we're talking about the Eureka Rebellion or whatever, um, the original rebellion was Lucifer against God. If you, whether or not you believe in the Bible, Bible or whatever beliefs people might have, who are listening today, looking at that story as given in the Bible, that was the original rebellion, where where Lucifer decided he could do it better than God and fell from heaven. So. Along with that, often the word rebellion gets linked into something bad, that if you are a rebel, 
you must therefore be bad because, well, didn't the devil rebel? Yes, he did. He rebelled against something good. But these miners here were rebelling against basically, a, you could almost call it a satanic system of control. Uh, that's maybe reaching a bit, but uh, it was certainly a system of control. And um, rebellion is not necessarily a bad thing. It depends against what you were rebelling. Yeah. There's a, a few gentlemen I know who are podcasters who would call it a satanic control matrix. There you go, Christopher there you go. and Jason at Operation yeah. Red Pill. Little shout out for you. Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to um, comment on the the uh, the strength of symbols, symbolism, for instance, like the Eureka flag. During the 2021 lockdowns, uh, my mum has a Eureka flag in her cupboard, which is now actually on the wall behind me, but at that stage it was still in the cupboard. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were we were doing our Freedom Cell meetups, sort of, you know, <clears throat> going back streets to meet up when we're not allowed to. And, uh, you know, we talked about, let's let's put the Eureka flag up the flagpole, because we have a flagpole here. And, and uh, sort of like, yeah, it sounded like a great idea. And then it's like, looked at each other and went, yeah, maybe not, <laughs> because it's just an immediately, I mean, anyone in authority is going to know exactly what's going on in this house. So mm-hmm. uh, the, what sort of think we are having as domestic terrorists so um yeah we decided not to but that's well, the strength even the australian flag has that same connotation now depending on what protest or what rally you go to yeah i mean if you, you use wave the red it proudly one, at one and you can yeah. have the same one at another and you consider domestic terrorist yeah yeah you, let, you, let alone you, the naval flag which is the red one but yeah 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 the red insignia or you can fly the uh flag upside down which is a country in distress so we thought yeah. about that too but it's like again mm, let's not draw attention to ourselves it's just me and mum i've only got a rake you know yeah that's it there's a very sharp rake <laughs> yeah <laughs> been working on it yeah that's it um i would i just chuck this in as a little not an afterthought exactly i was uh not lucky enough but i was privileged enough to get down to see uh, the what's the remnants of the original eureka flag which are down in Ballarat, They're, they are now held at the, um, uh, I think it's called the Eureka Centre in Ballarat, um, part of the, the Art Gallery of Ballarat's sort of buildings. Um, but the original fragments of the original flag that was flown at the stockade still exist. It's a, basically about 69% of the original flag that has been um, retained. Pieces were ripped off and cut off as souvenirs by some people throughout the years. But it was held... Um, there's a long story. I won't go into the whole story of how it got from the stockade to, to Ballarat's um, Eureka Centre, but it did, and it is, it's been um, authenticated as the actual flag, and it is still available for anyone who lives in Victoria or is visiting Victoria if you want to get out to Ballarat, uh, which is a couple of hours from Melbourne, um, by car. It's, it's worth going out there and seeing it. I, when I was there in... Um, 2015 with my wife we went in and it was, it was a place at that time it was called the museum of australian democracy at eureka or made made that's what they called it it was just a small museum really the flag was about the only real artifact on display but it was it was a i guess you'd say sobering moment to sit there in well they had it on display in a, in a, a glass case temperature controlled and all very, you know, fixed up and, and protected and preserved, but a very dimly lit room. And you could sit there. They had a row of just a row of comf- uh, cushioned seating. You could sit there and just spend a few minutes looking at the flag and thinking about what it meant. And 
very moving experience. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it was. It's that it's that that side effect of even today we're still a very young country, and to have something that's real and tangible to have in front of you, yeah. it's the equivalency of an American standing in front of the Declaration of Independence. That's right. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, cool. it's a physical yeah. artifact of our history <clears throat> and who we are as a people, and thankfully remnants of it still remain and it's around today yeah. because you know those soldiers they could have burnt it on the day and history probably wouldn't know about it yeah that's exactly right well apparently it was dragged down from a flagpole on, on which it hung and, and dragged through the mud and the, the um the dirt but uh it, it made it there and it's still there's very worth seeing if you're down there if you've got any interest in this at all go and see it sure it's just a bit of material but it's so much more than that you know it's it means a lot and um in terms of people weaponizing it we can't let that happen we've got to remind people and i hope anyone listening to this will realize that if you see that symbol it's not it's not a neo-nazi thing it's not a racist thing it was it was common men standing up common people standing up against an overreaching government that's what it really is yep. and that's what we should always remember it as when i see it it just reminds me it's the seed of democracy for our country yeah. Without indeed. that, we may never have had it until 1901. So we may, may never have had the, the vote later on, much later on, without these events occurring. So That's right, yeah. Thank and you for this conversation happens. today. This has been amazing. I always love delving into Australian history, and it's great when I can, can present that to the international listeners because I find they get a, a kick out of it not knowing much about us. Stella, thanks for, for um, help set this up. And do you have any messages for the people? Um. Uh, well, not really. I've really enjoyed this. I didn't really look into it very much because I wanted to hear what a somebody who's gone very much into it had to say. Um, because as as it's um, been, there's a lot of information that is. It says one thing here and it says something else there. So uh, it's interesting to read a book. I mean, to hear it from somebody who's gone into it from me, you know, a witness point of view. Um, but yeah. Just hold the line, people. I guess that's all I've got to say. Um, yeah. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for this. All right, Omer, how about you? Anything else to close the show out? I think you've you've covered it in this episode. You've done a fantastic job in presenting this information. You've been like a witness of history who's been able to deliver some information to people. Well, look, mate, I hope so. Drew, thanks for, for asking me. It's been a privilege to be on, on your, your podcast. And um, God bless everyone who's hearing our voices at this moment. Um, yeah, I'm not, as I said before, I'm not, I think I said it before, I'm not a historian. I'm not a professional historian at all. I'm an amateur reader who's interested, that's all. So if I've said anything that, that uh, people take issue with in terms of wrong facts, or feel free to correct me. I'm, I'm, I've just read what I've read. Um, but I think we need a little bit more of the Eureka spirit today, particularly with what we've seen in the last three years worldwide um, in Australia, but I guess particularly in Victoria too, um, yeah. where we just see these these psychopaths given too much power and just wanting to push people around. We need a little bit more of the Eureka spirit where we can say, no, enough is enough. You know, I don't know how you do it. I'm not advocating taking up arms. I really don't know what the answer is, but certainly I know what the answer isn't, and that is to normalise the fact that we just do what the government says, regardless of whether it makes sense or not. That that needs to stop. We need to somehow think for ourselves and say, no, we are, we're not kids, we're not idiots, we're capable of thinking for ourselves, and please stop pushing us around. <laughs> Amen. 
Uh, mm. Message to the Victorians out there. We birthed democracy in this state, in this country for ours. Let's take it back. Let's use our voices and let's go about it the right way. It's something we can't roll over and just dismiss. If we see tyranny, if we see government overreach, it's incumbent upon us as Victorians descended from those men and women that we speak up about it. And on that note, you have a wonderful day. Hey, everybody, it's closing time. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here.